Morning, church. That was pretty sweet, huh? My name is Matt Nicola. For those of you guys I don't know, I see some faces out there I don't know. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. Just had a sweet morning to worship the Lord. Sweet morning to celebrate His faithfulness in the lives of those among us getting baptized. So awesome. It's a little outside my normal serving lane. Um, outside, we saw, we saw our senior pastor in sunny uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I'm grateful for his chance to get a, a break and a rest. He'll be back next week. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to be an imperfect messenger for a perfect word this morning. Um, and we're going to be digging in out uh, of the Word of God. Uh, we're going to be digging in to really, you know, it's cool. On, on a Baptism Sunday, we're celebrating, you know, what we're celebrating is God still doing the things that he did in his Word, right? We read last week in, in Acts, in Acts 16, about Lydia and the Philippian jailer getting baptized you're getting saved and baptized, and we're hearing those stories among us today. The same God, the same power. It's awesome to celebrate like that today. Faithfully encountering men and women and changing their lives forever. A new identity, a new mission, a new mission. mission I'm talking about is to make disciples. That's our mission from, from Jesus, and that really takes us to our current series. We're in a series called The Power of Making Disciples. The Power of Making Disciples. We're going to catch up with Paul and the crew who are on their missionary journey, and we see this, this tool that's essential for this power, this, a to, this tool that's essential for making disciples. We see we're going to be in Acts 17, and we're going to be in three different cities, and we see in each one of those cities the, the same mission and the same tool carried out. What tool am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the gospel of, of Jesus Christ essential for making disciples of Jesus Christ. Without, it, without that tool, we can't even start. Um, this, past, this past January, at the beginning of the month, um, my wife Shauna and I had a momentary lapse in judgment and decided to start a house project. Um, <laughs> we decided to add a bathroom in our, in our basement. So you can imagine adding a bathroom from complete scratch. You need a lot of tools for that, right? Um, one, of, one of those tools is this is this screw gun, and I don't want to confuse anybody and mistake, have anybody mistake me for being somebody handy at, at all. That's not what I'm doing, but, but th- I love my DeWalt screw gun. I really do. This thing's versatile. It can do a lot, right? But, but this gun, without its battery, pretty much useless, right? It's like a fancy, odd-looking paperweight, right? And I put this thing in, and I'm Tim the Toolman Taylor. <laughs> it's powerful, right? This battery to this drill, this battery to this tool is the gospel to the power of making disciples. So let's dig into the word, jump into Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Uh, Start in verse 1. We're going to catch up with Paul and Timothy and the boys here. Um, We see it says, Now when when they, meaning, meaning Paul, Silas, Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Of the Jews. So we throw a, a, that first map up there. We see that, you know, this, this is right, coming right out of Philippi. They didn't have a whole week break from Philippi to this like we do. Like they were literally coming out, people being saved, literally just escaping with their life. The church is born and they make their way from, from Philippi to Thessalonica, about a hundred mile journey or so. Just the craziness. And it says they, they've encountered this, this synagogue. And in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I love, I love how it just says, like, they w- he went right in. Like, it's just, like, obvious. Well, of course Paul did. That's what Paul does. He preaches the gospel. He goes to places where people are gathered to hear the word of God. He went right into the synagogue. And we see them proving, explaining, reasoning. It says they, they wanted to prove that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's necessary for that suffering. We're going to see this gospel again and again. I just want to keep going here. In verse 5 it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jake, Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city's authority and the city's authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They let them go. So we see the gospel preached. Men and women believe. Jews and Gentiles believe. And then we see this city absolutely turned on its head. We see this chaos that ensues. Literally, the pot stirred this snowball of pandemonium just strike through. Opposition has, has, ridden, has risen, so the disciples are going to move on here. We see that in verse 10, the, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So we see they go from, from Thessalonica to Berea, about a 50-mile trip, and it says they did it by the cover of night. Anybody ever take a red-eye flight before? Ever do that? Like you leave at night and you arrive in the morning. I kind of imagine what this was like, right? So they left in the cover of night. When they got there, they went right into the synagogue. It was like they got there. It was morning. It was church time. And Paul was like, well, I'm up. I might as well go and, and preach, right? There's, there was still work to be done just because he was fleeing from persecution. Didn't mean there wasn't still a mission at hand. The spirit was leading. Continue, it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. It's a pretty sweet picture, isn't it? Pretty sweet picture of men and women being fed by the word of God. I love how, how Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, makes a distinction between these Jews and the Jews of Thessalonica. He says they were more noble. He was more noble. You know, when I, when I think of the word noble, for some reason I think of like birthright or family heritage or something like that. And we see that that's not what God's talking about at all in his word. Because it says more noble. And then what does it say? It says all eagerness, examining the scriptures. We know this word, word noble actually is translated to mean, to mean like an excessive willingness, an excessive readiness for the gospel. They were noble in a sense that their hearts were ready. They were primed. They were primed for what God had had to say. They were so much primed that they were so hungry for the word that they wanted to read it for themselves. Meaning that, like, could you imagine Paul up there? He probably had some scrolls, and, and he's reading, and he gets done with the sermon, and, like, these, they just come. They're so ready afterwards, and they're like, Paul, that, that thing you're reading, what, what, what is that? I want to read that for myself. Could I take that home? Paul's like, no, that's the only copy that exists. Don't do that. Right? Like, they, they wanted to read and be fed for themselves. It's amazing. We see that sweet, awesome picture didn't last for long. It says in verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed at 
by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those, conduct, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So we see these, our friends from Thessalonica, they make their way, they make the 50-mile journey and come and, and persecute just like they did in there. So Paul, Paul leaves and he, and he goes, let's look at the map one more time. And we see from, from Berea, he's going to go all the way to Athens. And this is not a short trip by any means. Do we have that one? No. Tommy? Well, you can imagine. <laughs> Athens is all the way down on that, on that very point of that peninsula. And that he actually took a boat, a 250-mile journey that he took. This long, long journey. This was not some short ferry ride. He spent nights probably in not, not very luxurious quarters. Okay? So he goes all the way down. He's in Athens now, and he's by himself. Okay, he goes by himself, and it says he's sitting here waiting for, for his boys. He's probably tired, right? This guy's gone from city to city to city, poured, poured out, been persecuted. He's like, all right, I'm just going to wait for my boys to show up. And what happens? <laughs> the spirit provokes him. He, he sees among the city in Athens, and it says the spirit was provoked, right? The, the city in Athens, many of us are familiar with Athens. And, and back then, it was the center of intellectualism. It was the cultural center of the world. Okay, the cultural center of the world. Uh, you can imagine these collections of art and architecture and temples. These temples literally built for every god you could imagine. Okay, the gods of of uh, the gods of art, the gods of intelligence, the gods of knowledge and achievement, the gods of recognition. Literally, these men and women they were deifying the, the desires of their heart. Literally, anything that they desired, they would put it as a god and they would worship it. And Paul, seeing this. Is, is provoked, provoked. What does that word provoked mean? It means like it's like agitated, but like really intensely. It's like almost a righteous anger, I think of when I think of provoked. And the spirit bringing Paul to this. He wasn't wowed over these idols. He wasn't wowed over this, this grand structure. He wasn't brow, you know, awed over man-made objects and things. It was convicting when I was reading that this week. He couldn't not act. That's what provoke means. He could not act. He had to. He had to. Let's see what he does. In verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue. Sound familiar? With the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the, to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except, except telling or hearing something new. something new. So here's Paul. Here's Paul, led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit now, out amongst the synagogues, uh, amongst the marketplaces, amongst Jews, Gentiles, these philosophers, Stoics, and Epicureans. We could go into what their worldview is, but, but it really describes it all really at the end, that verse 21. All the Athenians, whether they were Jews, Greeks, or whatever, anyone who wasn't a believer in Christ, they, their idol really was, was something new. They wanted to, to seek pleasure, right? What, what the new and exciting thing was, what the biggest building was, the new God, the new temple. 
the new temple. So they invite Paul to this court, the Areopagus. And this isn't like a formal court. There wasn't a judge and a jury, okay? It's like the court of public opinion, literally like the city center where people are like the most intelligent, you know, high, most highly respected people are gathered around. This is exactly where Paul wants to be, isn't it? So awesome. All right, let's read, let's read what he says. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, the men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed, passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Of your worship. I, all, I found also an, an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. How awesome is that? What a, what a perfect thing to say. Led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, Paul says, hey guys, I notice you're pretty religious. Notice you guys, you guys have a lot of gods. And, and I was walking, I was walking down 2nd Street in the interaction of, intersection of 2nd Street and Broad Street, Broadway. There's this, there's this altar, you know, you guys remember the, to the unknown God? This unknown God that you guys have clearly recognized, you, you must believe in it, right? You wrote this, you know, this inscription, you have this altar, but you, you say is unknown? This, this is who I'm talking about. This Jesus is, is who I'm talking about. So I'm talking about. Let's read the rest of his sermon. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, the, to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A mic drop sermon for sure. Right? Paul says this God that, that you thought was unknown, he's not that far off. He desires to be known. You see, these Athenians, regardless of their worldview, they, a lot of them didn't believe in God or gods, but they had this mindset that God operated in a completely different reality than they did. That they were doing their things over here, and God may be powerful, but kind of doing these things over here. They had no concept of relationship. And, and Paul says, Jesus Christ, this man who, whom God appointed to first create the world, then save the world, then be the king of the world, and then come and judge the world, proclaims the gospel. He says, Jesus Christ. I love it. Like, these guys are intellectuals. Paul basically takes them from Genesis 1 to Re Revelation 22, doesn't he? He takes him through the whole book, and he says this whole book, it's all about Jesus. Jesus, I proclaim to you. Let's see, let's read these last couple of verses and finish the chapter. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So we see, similar to, reaction, similar to the reactions in Berea and Thessalonica, we see uh, believing, we see some mocking. I love it with the people that, that believe. It says they joined them. It doesn't just say they believed and just stayed in their own spot. 
let's say they believed and, you know, stayed hanging out with their Stoic or, you know, Epicurean buddies. They joined. There was no turning back. There's no turning back. You guys read their shirts this morning in the baptism tank. Kelsey and, and Jenny's shirt said, no turning back on the back. back. There's no turning back for these people. These people. There's so much we could, we could go into in this passage. I could spend months with you on it. Um, but I, I want us to really hone in on what I believe God's calling us to focus on this morning. And that's this gospel as the essential tool for making disciples. The gospel is the essential tool for making disciples. We see in these three different cities, Paul armed with the gospel, and with that, and with that, he's given the, the eyes to look past the cultural facades to see the present reality, which is the same in each city, which is the same in this place today. Whether it was Jews stuck in their traditions and customs at the synagogues, or 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 in Athens, these false gods ramping around everywhere. It was made clear to Paul that he was among a lost world. He was among a broken and lost world full of lost people, full of sinners in need of rescue. The first thing the gospel does is the gospel exposes the reality of this world. It exposes the reality of this world for what it is, full of broken and lost people. Broken and lost people. The gospel is the most real thing there is. It's the most real thing there is. It gives us a real picture of where we sit. A real picture of where we sit, for all have sinned. Everyone is called to repent. Gives us a real picture of who Jesus is. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Because I needed a perfect Savior, so stuck in my sins. In complete depravity without Jesus. Gives us a real picture of who Jesus can be to me. The gospel exposes the reality of this world. The reality of this world. And not, and not just Paul you know, going from town to town. Not just from town to town, but think about it, from person to person. With the gospel as his lens, Paul is looking out and he sees people how God would see people. The reality that they're eternal beings headed in one direction or another, destined to be in hell or heaven for the rest of time. That's the reality of this world. You know, we're, with the gospel, we, we can... We can walk not, not lulled by the glamour of the world or the shininess of things or, or the comfort for, from being naive or what's popular. I went to a T-Wolves game a couple weeks ago. Some of you guys were there with me. Not wrong to go to a T-Wolves game. Might want to pick a better team than the T-Wolves, but not wrong. Um, and, and while attending the game, uh, or after attending the game, uh, and kind of preparing for this, I was really convicted. There's like 30,000 people at the Target Center or something like that, you know, I'm sitting there among a sellout crowd at the, at the Target Center, and, and I'm among people, men, women alike, who are far more passionate and, and fervent in that setting than, than many who, who gather together to come and worship the King of Kings. People getting excited and cheering. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. You know, I, I was thinking, you know, among 30,000 people, broken broken people coming to, many of them coming that this was going to be the highlight of their week. You know, I just come, come to church, so, so hopefully that was the highlight of my week. But even myself, I think of how many times I've gotten upset over a basketball game, lost my mind, <laughs> oh, or, or gotten really, or maybe too excited that, that my day, you think about it, that, that's, I've, I've hitched my day, I've hitched my passions to a bunch of guys I'll never meet dressed in gym shorts and tank tops, spending a couple hours trying to put a leather ball through a metal rim more times than the other guys. Think about how crazy that is. That's the brokenness of the world, people. 
the brokenness of the world. I could sit through a, a whole game and that wouldn't bother me at all. Spirit wants to provoke our hearts that something is wrong, wants to reveal and expose some truth. If you're not a sports person, this still applies to you. Okay, you got to take the gospel's lens to your situation. Maybe it's a coworker that's been, been trying to, maybe subtly trying to just uh, let you know that they're not doing very well, but, but you haven't had the eyes to see it because you're, you don't have the gospel on. You haven't allowed the gospel to expose that the fact that they're unfulfilled, that, that they're seeking for something. Maybe it's the complete opposite. Maybe you have a neighbor that always has like the new car, the new toy. Maybe you have a neighbor like that. Like they always have the new snowmobile and like you're too distracted from being coveted, from coveting that you aren't grieved by the fact that they're filling their cup with something that's never going to do it. Right? The gospel exposes the reality of this world. We have to personally apply this because out of personal application comes the acceptance of responsibility. Why does the God want to expose the rea- why does God want to expose the reality of this world to me? Not so I could complain about it, not so I could love it or become more like it, so I could bring the gospel to it. That's why he exposes it. That's why he exposes it, so I could bring the gospel to it. The gospel exposes the reality of this world to provoke the responsibility I have. I thought that word was so perfect in the text in in verse 16 that uh, as Paul was provoked, why would we change it? To provoke the responsibility that, that I have. The gospel exposes the reality of this world to provoke the responsibility I have. It moves us to feel weight in the game. What is this responsibility? We see Paul do, do three things, do three, three, three buckets of things in this passage. Okay, number one, see the bullet points under the second point. Number one, he receives all people without enabling. Okay, he receives all people without enabling. Driven by the gospel, we see Paul enter synagogue after synagogue, receiving Jews, literally Jew, Jews. These are the people that, that literally just tried to kill him a few days ago. Each town, he was stoned in Lystra, persecuted in Iconium, okay? Provoked and alone in in Athens, his reaction to the idols wasn't to, you know, wasn't just to avoid them or just, you know, stay at the hotel and wait for his boys. Like, it wasn't to get on a blog and blog about, you know, how sinful they were and how horrible it was and and the depravity of the world. No, 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 no. The gospel motivated him to, to connect, to connect, to receive these people, to, to see them how, how God would see them. He uses, you know, in, in verse uh, 28, he uses a couple of these lines that are, that are poems, lines and poems from, from Athenian culture. And, and Paul, again, he's not enabling, he's not putting himself under that to worship that, but he's, he's accepting that part of their culture, he's becoming one of them. He's, he's moving towards sinners in need of a Savior because he's, been, he's a sinner that's been saved by a Savior, Right? He has the humility to connect with them. So, so receiving all people without enabling. And then this, and then this, rejecting all sin without condemning. Rejecting all sin without condemning. Look all the way back to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, and we see him reason and explain why it's necessary for Christ to suffer and die. It's necessary for Christ to suffer and die because that's, that's what I needed to, to pay for my sins. I needed the Son of God to come down to the world, live a sinless, perfect life, and die because on my own I'm stuck in my sins. Reject all sins without condemning. You know, that, that's an awesome message, message in Athens, and, and a lot of people focus on the fact that he starts with, you know, I perceive you guys were religious, and he talks about this altar. But notice he just doesn't stop there. Right? He doesn't just say, I perceive you guys are religious, I love Jesus, 
we're good. He doesn't say that. No, no, no. He tells them who Jesus is. And then in verse 30, he says, everyone, because of this Jesus, because of this holy God and his desire to have a relationship with an unholy person, everyone must repent. Everyone must repent. There must come a point of confrontation, and that confrontation is sin, is sin. I must reject all sin without condemning. So think about these two things. All right, we're receiving all people, okay, with, without enabling, and we're rejecting all sin without condemning. Whoa, that's, that's a lot. Like we sit at the, kind of the crosshairs and the, sit in the tension of doing both those things. I want to kind of help us, help us see this tension, so I'm going to need your help doing that. I need six people. Emily, can you come and help me? Both the repses, come on. Come on, a couple people from over here. Matt, thank you. A couple more. We need two more. Come on, come on down. Don't be shy. All right. So I need three people over here. I need two more. Come on, Shauna, come on. Cheryl, thank you. Oh, you you're not exempt. All right. Can you put this on? Can you put this on? Shauna, you get to put on my swim shorts. Uh, those are actually theirs. Mike, could you take these sunglasses over to them? Thanks. All right, you could. You don't have to actually put it on, but we'll just okay, go like yeah. this. Thanks. <laughs> Brent, this doesn't count for my sermon time, by the way. Here you go. Here you go. You did a tie, huh? Oh, I actually tied yours, buddy. Ooh, good, because I don't know. <laughs> it's not a clip-on. All right, here you go. Each will sign for you. Here you go. All right, so I want you guys to, wa- to, to walk, showing the signs, kind of like you're protesting, and just like in a circle, okay? But come, come closer to me, okay? All right, now you guys have these signs. Whoa. Here you go. Right. All right. Like walk in a circle. Come on. Like, just like these guys. See, of course they wouldn't follow directions. All right, keep going. I'll tell you when you guys can stop. I stand in the middle of this tension, don't I? I stand in the middle. Each of these are true, okay? We, we might be playing on stereotypes a little bit to, to bring out the illustration, but these things are true. I am called to bring peace and unity, love everyone, just as the same as I am called to be holy and, and, and the same to have truth. Is this distracting? <laughs> this is the same thing. Matt's doing a really good job. I live in this tension. I live in this tension, you guys. All right, you guys can stop me. Thanks. Just but stay, up, stay up here. You look really good. I stand in the middle of this tension between these two, don't I? How could I, a man, how could you, a man, a woman, you know, appropriately pursue each one of these at the same time, okay, without compromising? How? I'll tell you what. On on our own, it's an epic fail, and we are going to completely fail without this thing, without Jesus Christ, without the gospel, without proclaiming. So the only way I can receive all people and reject all sin is by proclaiming Jesus without fear. By proclaiming Jesus without fear. In each city, Paul, Paul proclaims Jesus Christ. He spent three Sabbath days in, in Thessalonica. He preached in Berea. We see in Athens, maybe the, the, biggest, the biggest example of this, preaching from, again, from Genesis to Revelation. He preaches Jesus. This is where our responsibility starts and ends with Jesus coming out of our mouth, by proclaiming Jesus without fear. Think about it. Without that peace, making disciples 
And, and we do this, okay? Making disciples is just running back and forth between being a receiver and being a rejecter, okay? It's just putting on different clothes, okay? It's just deciding depending on what, what situation I'm in by what outfit I'm wearing. If I'm going to put on the aviators or the black rim glasses, okay? If I'm going to reject or receive, I'm just running back and forth. That's the truth. Thanks for your help, you guys. You could stay, like, stay dressed like that for the rest of the service. That would be awesome. Appreciate it. Give them a round. You can just set those right up there. And this, this is a heavy job description, isn't it? Like, we, we can laugh. We want to bring some, some lightness to this. But, but those things that they were putting up, like a call to, to unity and a call. You can just leave it right there, honey. Thanks. A call, a call to peace a call to truth, a call to be holy and lead others in that. That's a, that's a hefty job description. Proclaiming Jesus Christ, man, that's weighty. It's a high calling. It's a worthy calling. But, but we must finish in, in looking at the gospel and its power with this truth. Because of how high that calling is, we must know this. We must know this. That, that the gospel exposes the reality of this world to provoke the responsibility I have, knowing it's God who ensures the results. Knowing it's God who ensures the results. The results that, God, that, that, that come are, are what God guarantees and has decided over and over. Those, those two people in Athens that are named Dionysus and Demarius, it was God who had chosen them from the beginning of time. The, the, the women in Thessalonica, it said not a few of the devout women, it, it was God who had chosen who do you think put in the hearts of the noble Jews in Berea to be ready and to be willing? That was God. It's God who ensures the results. It's God who ensures the results. Paul's the greatest preacher of all time, besides Jesus Christ, who kind of had an unfair advantage, right? The, the greatest preacher of all time. And this might be one of his best sermons of all time. This is a highlight reel. And, and we see it comes down to the end and, I don't necessarily see a huge revival in Athens. It says some believed. It names two people that we never heard of again. God doesn't promise a certain success rate based on our even, evangelic aptitude or our skills or our experience. No, no, no. No, no, no. Instead of what the gospel promises, what the gospel reveals is a clear line drawn in the sand between the lost and the found. And maybe one of the least pre preached passages of all time in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, um, I've, I've come not to bring peace, but with a sword. You don't hear that one very much. <laughs> and I think of that sword drawing, drawing a line in the sand, splitting between the lost and, and the found, that, that God promises that. That there's, there's some outcome that, that's coming that, that his people will for sure be called back to himself. Back to himself. So this promise, really walking this out, walking this out and how the power of the gospel, how it's the essential tool, tool to, to when the results come. How does that happen? Well, because when the results aren't what I expected, I need, need to reassess my expectations, don't I? Because I wasn't in control of it anyways. And, and, and when the results are awesome, okay, when we have 16 people baptized on a Sunday or, you know, the church is full of people, praise God it is, I need to be reminded that it's not me who brought them here. So we see walking it out in really these two ways. These two ways. Number one, recognizing the resistance from those still lost. It's one of the promises that God ensures. We don't like to talk about that one, but God promises that there's going to be resistance 
from those still lost, that you will preach the gospel and, and hearts will be hardened and resist. See that in each one of the cities. In Thessalonica, we, just, we see this mob starting from jealous Jews, and these people are just out of their minds, senseless, senseless in it. The gospel to, to those w- without the ears to hear it is just like a gasoline can often, right? Spreading li- like fire, but spreading with purpose, spreading with purpose because the opposition we face is, is, is often we, it just looks baseless or senseless, and we know that it's just, they're just pawns being used by the enemy, okay? But, but when we realize that that opposition, the resistance that we face, is, is part of the promise ensured by God, that gives us some comfort, doesn't it? That gives us trust. That gives us purpose. That this is held in the boundaries of what God had, had ordained and God had entrusted and, and promised to us. Jesus promised that because of him, because of the gospel, that we would be persecuted and, and hated. I'm thankful that that's not the only result that he, that he promises. Amen? Amen? God also, in God, knowing God also ensures the results includes this. It includes rejoicing in the rescue of those now found. Rejoicing in the rescue of, of those now found. God promises salvation for his people. He promises salvation for his people. He promises that the word of God, the gospel, when faithfully preached, will not return void. That's a promise that, that God gives us. So whether it's one or 1,000, we rejoice and we celebrate the same. Can I be a little vulnerable with you as we kind of close up? Uh, uh, kind of one of the, my favorite things about, about my job is I get to um, you know, spend time with the people that are getting baptized and, and go through that. And um, you know, We've in the past had 8, 10, 15 baptisms you know, at times in, in this week, in, in this passage, when I'm, when I'm in this, I, I found myself on Wednesday or Thursday, we had a, only a couple at each service. We had some things come up, and just that's, that's what God had given us. And, and, I, and the question was kind of put out there, like, should we do it? Like, should we still, like, go through and set up the tank and, and go through all, all of that for the couple people? And, and for a second, I thought about it. I thought about, you know, how, how much chips I was going to have to ask people to come in and do this and all of that. And God just absolutely wrecked me as, as I was closing and I was trying to figure out what I was going to tell you all here and how hypocritical that would be for me to, to say, hey, God had promised the results are not on you and then me to change the plan based on something that I didn't have control over. That's an easy decision. We're going to celebrate Jenny and Kelsey. We'd celebrate one person. That's the same miracle. That's the same level of miracle. Celebrate that. We celebrate a new life in Christ because we're celebrating Christ because he's worthy of, of it all. He's worthy of it all. So, so I, love, I, I love how when Jenny and Kelsey, when they're sharing their story, I hope you're celebrating the wins because we have to celebrate and rejoice at God at work. And I hope as you were celebrating God at work in them, you're celebrating God at work in you. You're rem- remembering when you were in the tank, remembering your story, remembering how God's working in your life right now or convicted that maybe Maybe we need to move towards that. We need to move towards that. You know, all, all of these people we've seen, seen in this passage from different places, probably never met each other, different customs, all these things, Berea, Thessalonica, all these different places. You know, they probably never met each other. And they had, they had different customs. Some were idol worshipers, some were Jews, some were self-righteous. Some had to lay down the lie. They, they earned a seat at the table. You know, some had to lay down, the, you know, man-made gods and, selfish desires. 
But at the end of the day, they were all found to be in the same spot. All believers were returned to the same exact identity. And it's the same exact identity that we're returned to. And you know, these, these people in Berea and Thessalonica and Athens, unlikely, like I said, they, they ever met each other. But part of the promise that God ensures is that, that they're set to be standing arm in arm now, rejoicing to the king of kings, worshiping him for all of eternity. And we're, we're stand set there too. We're set to stand there too, right next to them, arm in arm. And that's, that's an awesome truth, an awesome truth. It's all because of what Jesus did. It's all because of this truth of the gospel, this essential tool that is the power, is the battery to us making, making disciples, making disciples. So, so as we close here, we'll ask the band to come down and we're going to sing. I, I think of in a morning that's just saturated with new birth and truth of the gospel. Okay, see this, seeing the new birth in the passages and seeing the new birth in, represented in the baptism tank, the death, burial, and resurrection because of what Jesus did. In that morning, in that morning I'm, I've been absolutely praying. Literally, as I've been talking to you this morning, my spirit has been praying that, that we would not miss this truth. This truth, okay? Listen up. We would not miss this truth that we know that the gospel can't be our tool, okay, unless we've accepted it first as our gift. Can't go out and share it to the world when I haven't accepted it as my own, as my own. So maybe you've sat here this morning um, and you're like, I, I don't feel provoked. I don't, I don't feel provoked or intensely agitated to act. I, I don't feel that, that rest of, of assurance that God ensures a, a result, a, a good promise for me. I would charge you, as the, as the word of God charges you to, to lean back into the gospel. To lean back into the gospel. To lean back into the cross. Lean back into the empty tomb. Lean back into the time, or if there was a time where you, you realized that you couldn't do it on your own. That there was a payment, there was a debt that had been stacked up that you were not able to pay. How merciful of God to open our eyes, even if for the first time today. And I believe that God desires to open up our hearts and grant us the gift of repentance today for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. So whether it's for the first or the thousandth, I just charge you as we leave here to lean into that truth. Lean into that truth. What is the gospel to me? Is it first my gift? And, and if it is, if I have accepted that gift, is, is it the most essential tool that I'm using in my life in the most important mission I've been given to make disciples, to make disciples. And I, I, and I think God's, God's word is clear that he will be found, that he will return that repentance with, with truth, with grace, with a refreshment and a zeal that only comes through his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy this morning. Your mercies are new every day. Thank you for pouring out yourself, Lord, your Holy Spirit onto this place, Lord, as we worship. I felt the Spirit as I was in tears hearing the testimonies in the tank of Jenny and Kelsey and just you at work, Father. You poured yourself out. We rejoice in, in these work, and we're convicted, God. We're convicted that this, this gospel as this, this tool, Lord, that, that we're called, and it's, it's such a worthy such a capable tool, Father. It can do all. It's a sword, Father. It's a motivator. It brings people back to yourself, Father. We're, we're convicted, Lord, that, 
that there's more that you would have for us with this gospel. First, first for ourselves, Lord, in our relationship, God. I ask you to pour out onto yourself relationship, God, that, that you are the ones who hold our relationships together as the sustainer, as the one who called us in. I, got, I ask, Lord, that you would pour out desire on this church this morning, on the hearts of the men and women, that we would align your desires with our desires. F- Father, please, God, would you make those ours? Would we rid ourselves of those and be, be replaced by the things you would call us to? as Paul did, going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the gospel, staying focused on what what he knew you had called him to do. And lastly, Father, I pray for steadfastness. Would you pour steadfastness out on this church today? As Paul went from city to city, would we go from day to day, from week to week, to conversation to conversation, holding fast to the responsibility that we have, but also holding fast to the truth and, and trust that it's you who ensures the results. That it's you who guarantees, who holds us in your promise. You hold us to those things, Father. Please, God. Would you not let anyone leave here today, Lord, that, that, who has some business to do with you, some reaction to the gospel, some acceptance that needs to be done in their heart, whether for the first time or a thousand. Don't let, let them leave here today without doing that business with you. Use others to come around them. Be supernatural. God, take an imperfect messenger and, and, and just put it in each person's heart because it is a perfect message. The gospel is a perfect message. We pray this all in Jesus' name, for your glory, amen.